Wonderful. Well, I welcome you tonight to uh, Plum Creek Chapel on a, a special midweek service. You know, we normally meet Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock Mountain, uh, but uh, due to a scheduling conflict, uh, we had to switch this week to Thursday, and I sure appreciate everybody's uh, gracious willingness to, uh, to shift gears a bit. But uh, we're starting a new series tonight, and I really, really wanted to do it in person rather than just record it uh, into a camera. It just It's so much better to hear your feedback and your input and the dialogue. I learn from the dialogue. I learn every time I teach something. And, uh, and I know other people learn uh, good, learn well from dialogue as well. So uh, we're going to be kicking that off here in a moment. And uh, don't really have a time frame agenda. Uh, originally, uh, I taught this uh, some years ago in five parts. Uh, but it was a little bit different setting. It was a conference setting and I didn't have the dialogue and the back and forth. So we'll see how long it takes us. I'm kind of hoping we can uh, go through this uh, for the summer because we've got something else planned uh, starting in September on Wednesday nights. Uh, but regardless, uh, it's in the Lord's hands and we'll kind of take it as long as we need to. I do hope that once we get through all of the material that we can maybe spend some time on doing some case studies and looking at uh, key difficult passages that that sometimes come into play with this discussion of Calvinism. So before we start, I want to open us in prayer, and I, I want to remember, of course, all of the uh, uh, families down there in Uvalde. I've uh, hunted in Uvalde, killed a 10-point buck one time in Uvalde, and uh, certainly uh, our hearts go out to those families. Just really unspeakable to think of what, uh, what they're going through. So we want to pray for the Lord's grace and pray that uh, God would watch over them and pray for our uh, new series that we're getting started tonight. So would you bow with me? Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity just to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ and open your word and uh, really uh, allow it to nourish our souls and help uh, equip and train us in the clarity of the gospel. And uh, Father, tonight as we begin, we think of uh, those down in uh, Texas and Uvalde. We pray that, uh, Lord, you would uh, just watch over them, comfort them in some measure as only you can. We pray that if there are folks affected by this tragedy that don't know you, that this might be the very thing that draws them to you and they recognize their need for a Savior and come to faith. For those who do know you, I pray that they would lean on their faith. Pray that the solid Bible teaching, grace-oriented churches in the area would really take this opportunity to, uh, to minister and to encourage and surround these folks as they go through this. So, Lord, we, uh, we think of them tonight, and Lord, we just pray now that you go before us as we do this uh, study and use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as always, I want to mention a couple of quick announcements. Uh, my Tuesday podcast this week on the Christian Underground News Network was kind of an interesting topic, UFOs, the Bible, and you. And uh, not surprisingly, because of the topic, it's getting quite a bit of uh, downloads. But uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, that's available at notbyworks.org or wherever uh, podcasts are, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. By the way, we just added three new podcast uh, uh, apps. Uh, so we're now on just about every conceivable podcast app, including Samsung, and I forget the other ones. Uh, that were added, uh, but wherever you, whatever your podcast uh, application is of choice, just search for Not By Works Ministries, and you can subscribe and uh, keep up with with those. So, encourage you to check that out. Uh, don't forget uh, the new book is still available. We've got some out in the lobby on the table, uh, or you can go to SpiritOfTheAntichrist.org. Uh, if I had the time, I would 
give you several more anecdotes about emails and calls that I've gotten uh, and uh, as a result of just how the Lord is uh, using uh, this book. Um, so with that, um, let's, uh, let's dive in. And I want to just kind of go slow here at the beginning and talk about this topic, but we're calling this, What is Calvinism? And is it biblical? And this has uh, been a passion of mine for 32 years now, since 1990. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But as I travel around the country and speak in churches and conferences, or as I teach theology classes and uh, adjunct roles at schools, it just seems like over and over again, people are asking me, what do you think about Calvinism? Or what's all this uh, hubbub about Calvinism? Or are you a Calvinist? Um, you know, what's the big deal about Calvinism? It's in the, uh, the news everywhere. In fact, before I really uh, even understood a whole lot about Calvinism myself years ago, while I was in seminary, this would have been about 92, uh, as Wendy and I were planning our wedding, we were also interviewing at a small little country church north of Dallas uh, and uh, became my first church. It was kind of a part-time weekend a uh, small uh, church. Um, and we actually, my first Sunday in the pulpit after accepting the position was the Sunday we got back from our honeymoon. So we kind of started the church as we started our life together. But in that interview process, one of the elders, I never will forget, asked me, are you a Calvinist? And he wasn't thrilled with my answer because as we're going to see tonight, he was coming from the perspective that really there are only two options. You are either a Calvinist or you are an Arminian, and I'll define those terms, of course, as we go through this. Um, but I, my answer was, uh, was I'm really neither. And uh, as I explained it, and you know, he, he obviously it didn't bother him too much because they went ahead and offered me the position. But um, uh, that's part of the problem with this subject is that a lot of people have bought into the mistaken notion that really all of Christianity and all of theology can be divided into those two camps, you know. It's like Coke or Pepsi. If you want iced tea, forget it. you got to pick one or the other. And, and as we shall see, that's certainly not the case. Uh, Calvinism and Arminianism both uh, kind of started in the 16th century. So if they're the only options, then what do you do with the first, you know, 4,500 years of human history, <laughs> you know, there, there was no Calvinism in the 1300s, you know. Um, but it, 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 what we see happening uh, as we survey the landscape is that Calvinism is really dominating the discussion. Uh, I've been at a lot of conferences through the years where they were put on by Calvinists, and um, they, the whole uh, premise of the conference and all of the speakers were all talking about the merits of Calvinism and why everybody should be a Calvinist, Calvinist and why Calvinism is the only accurate understanding uh, of uh, Scripture. I get a steady stream of emails in my inbox of people uh, asking this, especially because in the last 10 years or so, so much of our work at Not By Works Ministries has focused on Bible prophecy and end times and how that relates to the urgency of the gospel. Uh, and so a lot of people will resonate with some of the things that I'm saying about the end times and not realize that I ha have a long-standing reputation of being an outspoken critic of Calvinism. 
And so when they come across something I say, as they dive deep into my books or deep, you know, or videos and so forth, they'll come across it and it'll kind of surprise them. So they'll shoot off an email and say, well, you said this, what, what do you mean? And it gives me the opportunity then to kind of explain the clarity and accuracy of the gospel, which is the reason Not By Works was founded. That's our passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. So, you know, given the pervasive uh, nature of this topic, um, I just feel like it's, it would be good to kind of dive in and, and spend some time educating our folks on what this is. Now, before we get uh, too far into it, let me just ask you guys, how many of you, uh, let's just start simple. How many of you have heard of Calvinism as a theological you know, system? How many of you feel like you could accurately and confidently and succinctly define what is a Calvinist? Anybody? Yeah, that's not surprising that, that so few can, because it's one of those terms that gets bandied about, and usually when it's bandied about, it's with someone who is a diehard Calvinist, and you certainly don't want to say, well, what is that? You know, because then it makes you look bad, right? So you just sort of nod and wink and say, okay, yeah, I get it. Um, but hopefully, by the time we finish this uh, study, you'll be very uh, uh, you know, articulate about what Calvinism is, and hopefully you'll understand it in the light of Scripture, and, uh, and I think it'll be, it'll be helpful. So a few caveats to start with. Uh, first of all, why does this matter? You know, some people will say, you know, what's the big deal about Calvinism? So you have sort of two camps today in this postmodern Christian world. You've got the whole, I don't even know how to describe them. I guess postmodern is the best way. The whole sort of neo-Christian groups that have no use for anything theological or doctrinal. They're all about feelings and emotions and, you know, what used to be called the seeker-sensitive type churches. And, and they think that any drawing any lines of distinction or clarity is wrong, that we can't we all just get along and just love Jesus and we don't need theology. So that group, uh, you know, certainly uh, really kind of has this attitude of, Calvinism, why are you wasting time on that? I remember a, a fellow at one of the churches I was at for a while that when I wrote an article once in a, in a newsletter about Calvinism, uh, wasn't even teaching on it, wasn't making it a big deal, just wrote a quick little sort of primer on Calvinism because I thought some people might like to know. Boy, he got all over me. What are you talking about Calvinism? Nobody cares about that. That's just the stuff of seminaries and you know, accommodations. Why are you wasting time with people? We just need to do more important stuff. So I think uh, it's important to establish the need for you know, studying this uh, topic. Um, even if you don't know the history, the details, and the terminology of a Calvinist system of theology, every believer needs to be aware of Calvinism's underlying teaching because it represents, as we shall see, a serious threat to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. My guess is most believers today, especially because of this rising tide of Calvinism, are heavily influenced by it. And even though they might not even know that's what it is, if you were to ask them to uh, describe the gospel or tell me what the gospel is or tell me how a person gets saved, their answer is going to have a Calvinistic flavor in it, whether they realize it or not. It's that pervasive. So we need to watch out for it. We need to learn uh, to look for it in books and in podcasts and in videos. Uh, we need to get to know uh, some of the key Calvinist teachers, which we're going to talk about. 
and, uh, and be aware. So why does this matter? I just came up with a few quick uh, a- uh, answers to that question. Number one, and, and very first and foremost, Calvinism is directly related to the gospel and eternal salvation. It is, in and of itself, a soteriological system, meaning a system that's related to the doctrine of salvation. So there are other systems out there that emphasize, you know, uh, other uh, aspects like end times. You could say I'm premillennial or I'm pre-tribulational or that kind of thing. And those terms relate more directly to, you know, the end times. But Calvinism, by its very nature, and we're going to go through the five points in this series in great detail, uh, is a directly related to the gospel of, and eternal salvation. So, and there's nothing more important than that. Right? Nothing matters more than the gospel. Uh, you, can, you can be you know, off base in some doctrinal areas. Remember, theology is a process. We're always working on developing our doctrine. And none of us have it all perfect. And, uh, and oh, as you go through time and study the Word of God, you can fine-tune some uh, less important areas. But this is fundamentally the most important message of God's Word. And that is, how can lost and fallen sin, sinful mankind reconcile, be reconciled to a holy God, be forgiven of his sin, and be given the free gift of eternal life? How precisely does that happen? That, that's really what this is all about. So it matters because by its very nature, the subject uh, matters more than anything else. Secondly, theology matters in general. And I threw this one in there just kind of as a retort to those who think that anything theological is boring and a waste of time and not relevant. Theology is inherently relevant. It's because of theology that we can understand what God has revealed to us. It's because of theology that we can understand the gospel. Uh, you know, So theology as we've talked about in this uh, uh, Wednesday night uh, or midweek service before, is simply the study of God, and it's thinking about God through the lens of Scripture and understanding what He's revealed to us about Himself. And that matters, and this Calvinism is a theological system. Thirdly, we are commanded to rightly divide the Word. Well, you can't rightly divide the Word without scrutinizing any system. So, uh, what, what I have discovered as I've interacted with those who espouse the Calvinist system is they tend, this is a generalization, I'm not, not personally attacking you know, all Calvinists, but in general they tend to run to their system first and the Bible secondarily. Now, of course, they believe their system is based on the Scripture. In fact, most Calvinists are very solid Biblicists. They believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. They value it highly. They just don't handle it correctly. They have a flawed hermeneutic that leads them to some conclusions that I hope I will be able to demonstrate through this uh, series don't comport with the teaching of Scripture. So uh, we, we, to the extent that we are commanded to rightly divide the Word of God, we ought to take not just Calvinism, but any theological system, and run it through the grid of Scripture and see if it measures up. Uh, and then fourthly, this matters because Calvinism is pervasive and growing within the church. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in my message in our series through the book of Acts, uh, we called it uh, the search for church, how I'm getting more and more uh, emails uh, every week from people 
looking for a church. I got one again today. People living in a certain area saying, hey, do you know of any good Bible teaching churches that are not Calvinist? Because they're just hard to find. The seminaries are putting out Calvinists. Even long-standing, solid dispensational schools from bygone years have kind of shifted in that direction now. And it's just hard to find, uh, you know, schools and churches that haven't been influenced by Calvinism. So for these reasons, uh, I think this study matters. And, um, and I think it will be edifying and encouraging to really kind of have a, a, an understanding of what this is all about. So as we begin, I want to kind of ask some questions here to get you thinking in terms of uh, Calvinism. Again, you may not know the name or really be able to define the system comprehensively, uh, but I think you'll understand from these questions uh, really what Calvinism uh, leads to. Again, many people tend to divide Calvinism into just or divide all of Christianity into two systems, Calvinism or Arminianism. So to a Calvinist, there's no such thing as a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist. It's an all-or-nothing system. If you're not all-in with all five points of their system, you're an Arminian, right? Uh, so again, to a, to a Calvinist, a four-point Calvinist is an Arminian, right? Uh, but because for so many years, I mean literally the last, 200 years as we got into the turn of the 20th century and even the mid uh, 19th century, everything sort of came down to one or the other. What ended up happening was people that really study the Bible and, and try to make sense of what God has revealed to us here through proper hermeneutics would say, well, I can't buy the whole system. I have some problems with limited atonement or I have some problems with this or that. And so they would say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And, and, and because they feel like you have to define yourself as either one or the other. They're certainly not an Arminian. And again, we're going to find these terms as we go through. Uh, but what I'm here to say is, you know, we don't need to define ourselves in terms of either system. We want to always define ourselves in terms of Scripture. So I uh, am, for example, uh, consider myself a dispensationalist. I've been heavily involved in dispensational theology throughout my career. I've been part of the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, was a founding member of that. I've spoken at top dispensational conferences and schools, um, written about it extensively. I have a whole chapter in my book, What Lies Ahead, all about what is dispensational theology. But I'm here to tell you what I really strive to do, which we should all strive to do, not that I succeed every time, is I am a biblicist first and a dispensationalist second. And indeed, there are some areas of classic dispensational theology that as I've studied the scriptures, I take a slightly different view than most dispensations today, not all. Uh, for example, my view of the New Covenant is probably the minority view among dispensationalists. Um, uh, but for what it's worth, it is the view of Darby, and he's the founder of dispensationalism, so there's that. But anyway, um, uh, so my point is what we should all strive to do uh, is to be biblicists first, and then, you know, theological systems have their place. They have a role to play. It helps us quickly summarize, at least in general terms, where a person is coming from. If a person says they're charismatic, okay, now you know that their view of the Holy Spirit and some of the passages in Acts and 1 Corinthians are going to be a little bit different, and you kind of get where they're coming from. If someone says they're, you know, a Wesleyan, well, you understand that they don't believe in eternal security, and they, 
They kind of believe you can lose your salvation. Same thing with Calvinism and Arminianism. You, you know where they're coming from. Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism simply means three things. You believe in a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, as we just studied for the last 24 weeks. Uh, and secondly, it means because of that hermeneutic, you believe in a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. So we reject replacement theology. We believe there is a future for national Israel. There is going to be a rebuilt temple, as we're talking about on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Christ is going to come back and reign and rule from that temple. Uh, and then thirdly, a dispensationalism teaches that the overarching principle of God's word and of biblical history is the, that God wants to bring himself glory, not just save mankind. Most other systems, their, their core essence of their system is all about us getting saved. We believe that in the redemptive teaching of Scripture, clearly, I mean, that's what, I mean, dispensationalism is passionate about the grace gospel, but we, we step back from that and say that God has a, has, God is doing more in the universe than simply redeeming mankind. He's also redeeming the earth from the curse of sin. He's recreating his entire creation in sinless perfection as the Bible comes full circle. So those are the three tenets of dispensationalism, the literal grammatical hermeneutic, or consistent literal grammatical hermeneutic, I should say, uh, the distinction between Israel and the church, and the doxological purpose of God in human history. Uh, and so if someone says, I'm a dispensationalist, you kind of, you know something about them. So I'm not suggesting that all theological systems are, you know, bad or shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't think in those terms. They're helpful, but we must always think in terms of Scripture first, what does the Bible say, not, do, not what does Calvin say, or what does you know, Wesley say, and whatever. Okay? Um, so I'm going to ask these questions because perhaps some of you are a, Cal are a Calvinist and didn't really even realize it, or perhaps you're not, but you didn't really understand that these uh, concepts that I'm about to show you uh, emanate from a Calvinist perspective. So first of all, um, man is unable to believe the gospel even if he wants to. Anybody hold to that view? Well, if you agree with that, you're a Calvinist. And again, I'm going to show you all of this in their own terms. But they believe man is unable to believe the gospel even if he wants to. Secondly, you must persevere in good works throughout your entire life or you'll end up in hell. Anybody believe that? Probably not in this church because we've we have a long history here of teaching good, solid grace uh, teaching. But if you agree with that, you're a Calvinist. That's absolutely what they believe. And again, I'm, gonna, I'm not just making unsubstantiated claims. I'm going to show you in their own words as we go through this series. Uh, if you commit any big sins after believing the gospel, it proves you didn't really believe the gospel and you're not a Christian. Anybody hold that view? Some people do because we've been taught this so often. How often have you heard someone say, or maybe even had these thoughts and comments yourself, that, oh, oh so-and-so, I, I know he trusted Christ as a child, but man, now he's involved in all kinds of drugs and sex and all this, so he, he must not have really been a Christian. If you think that, that comes from a Calvinist view, the fifth point of Calvinism that we're going to talk about. Uh, in John 3.16, the word world, for God so loved the world, means only the elect. If you think that, you're a Calvinist. And I hope nobody does think that, and we'll dive into that as we go through this series. 
Uh, obviously, the biggie is Jesus only died for the elect. Anybody believe that? If you do, you're a Calvinist. Uh, what about this one? The proof of whether you are a Christian or not is your behavior. I have a whole section of this in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, citing leading Calvinists who tell you again and again, you want to know if you're really a Christian? Look at your life. Examine your life. So if you believe that the proof of whether or not you are a Christian is your behavior, you're a Calvinist. Um, I feel like I should interject here the counterpoint to that, which is we believe Scripture teaches our assurance is based on the promise of Jesus Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So I don't look at my life to see if I'm saved. I wasn't saved by works. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. I'm saved by grace through faith. And based on the, the uh, repeated promise of Scripture that if we'll simply trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins for eternal life, he'll give it to us. And he said he has given it to us as a present possession if we've believed in him. So my assurance isn't based on my works. If it were, I would doubt my salvation every day because I don't always live in the Spirit. I don't always live for Christ. I'm not always reflecting the new nature, the new man within me. Sometimes I reflect uh, the old nature. So we don't want to ever look at our behavior, and indeed Scripture never tells us to do that. There are several passages that may come to your mind that you think, of, well, it sure sounds like it's telling you to examine your life to see if you're really a Christian. Those are all misunderstood in their context. Um, but uh, our, what we should look at is the, the empirical promise of Christ, not the subjective promise of our own behavior. Uh, and then the next one related to this is Calvinists teach there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Did you know that? It's a very major tenet in their system. So in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul talks about the natural, the spiritual, and the carnal, they see him as only describing two people, the believer and the unbeliever. The spiritual is the believer. The carnal and the natural are both unbelievers. They do not have a category for carnal Christian. To be a carnal Christian means to be an unbeliever in their mind. Um, because they teach that Christians do not have a sin nature. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I love talking about this with Calvinists because they will all readily agree when you get them engaged in a discussion that they sin. I mean, no one's going to say, oh, I'm perfect, I never sin. And I'll say, well, what, what is it within you that prompts you to sin? And what they'll say is the flesh. So, okay, well, what is the flesh? Paul describes it pretty easily in Romans 7, I mean, pretty clearly in Romans 7. Well, they say, oh, well, that was before Paul was a Christian. You know, Romans 7, Paul is describing his pre-conversion life, which is not true. Contextually, it's very plain clear that he's describing his life struggling between the flesh and the spirit. But at the end, what I end up saying to these folks is just, well, whatever it is that's causing you to sin, that's leading you to sin, you know, you can call it what you want, but it's the sin nature. But they believe that when you get saved, the new nature eradicates the old nature. So they don't believe in a dual nature. They believe in the singularity of nature, and you only have a new nature. And yet, they still sin. They just don't sin a whole lot. I'm going to give you several quotes about that. So I just wanted to kind of whet your appetite a bit with some of these real practical questions and issues that relate directly to this issue of Calvinism. So any questions about any of these uh, statements? Just to kind of, and they're by no means comprehensive, but it's some of the big ones. Yeah. 
I totally agree that the Calvinistic attitude towards never really being sure that you are truly saved unless you continue in your good works is no way to live your life. But if they had placed their faith in Jesus at one point, regardless of what they believed, what the English children are still saved. So the comment is, uh, it is true that uh, that you should not uh, be doubting your salvation constantly, but regardless of whether that person is anguishing over the the reality, the present reality of his salvation, they really are secure. Is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. I've often said back when R.C. Sproul was alive, and I've met him, I've worked with him, I've shared the stage with him. Uh, he used to say. Uh, on more than one occasion, that he himself, because of his Calvinist understanding, can only be 99% sure that he's going to heaven. Because according to his theology, if on his deathbed, hypothetically, he were to deny the faith, in his theology, that would prove he was never really saved. And so I've often said, I'm more sure of R.C. Sproul's salvation than R.C. Sproul was. And of course, today he's with the Lord. Um, I mean, we certainly believe that. I'm not suggesting that a lot of these Calvinist teachers aren't saved. I'm certain that, you know, as much as they've been in the Word and studied the Word for decades in some cases, they, at some point in their journey, came to understand the clear and simple gospel message that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and all they have to do is believe that. But they've just, over the years, twisted it and distorted it, and now what they're teaching is not accurate. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people that have wrong theology are in and of themselves not saved. I can tell you if all a person has ever believed and understood, if all they've ever believed and understood their entire life is the Calvinist view of salvation, they can't possibly be saved. Because as we're going to demonstrate in this study, the Calvinist view of, of salvation is dead wrong. It's just not accurate. Nobody gets saved by making a pledge or promise to God to do good, by turning from all of their sins, by making Him Lord of their life, and this type of bilateral contract, which is what they think you have to do. And that's why they can then say down the road, if a person falls away or starts backsliding or lives like the devil somehow, they can say, well, see, his commitment wasn't strong enough or her pledge to follow Christ wasn't strong enough. And so they must not really be saved. Because in their mind, the mechanism for getting saved is about what you bring to the table. It's your pledge. So they do not see a distinction. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. But they do not see a distinction between salvation and discipleship. We believe the Bible teaches a very clear distinction between the two. Salvation is a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ that you receive simply by faith. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. Discipleship means to follow Christ. And in Scripture, there were unbelievers that followed Christ. Judas was called a disciple. We know from John's gospel, he's not a believer. He's in hell today. Uh, John chapter 6 also describes a whole group of people that followed Christ out of curiosity but never believed in him. So you can be a disciple and not be a believer. You can also be a believer and be a follower of Christ. That's what we should all do. Having received the free gift of eternal life, we ought to faithfully follow the Lord. Every day we ought to wake up and say, Lord, I want to die to myself, live for you, and serve you. How can I bring you glory today? That's what we should all do. But the fact that we don't do it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. But again, a Calvinist teaches that, the, that all Christians 
must be disciples. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. If you're not following Christ, you're not a Christian. That's what they believe. And I'm, gonna, I'm making a lot of assertions here in this introductory session, and I hope you'll give me the leeway to make the case as we go through this. I know I'm, I'm thinking in my mind of all the people that are listening to this podcast or watching the video and throwing things at the screen because they think, oh, you're not being fair. You're, you're just hurling insults. I'm not. I'm really not. Um, so any other comments uh, at this point before we move on? So when it comes to understanding the framework of Calvinism versus Arminianism and, and, and understanding what a Calvinists are bothered by, you know, why, why did, you know, we're going to go into the history of it here in a minute, but why did, why, how was Calvinism born? Like most theologies, it was reactionary. Okay, most theological systems are born in a historical context where somebody was teaching something wrong, so somebody else came along and said, no, that's not right, and we're going to tell you what it really is, and the pendulum swings, right? And, and, and they get some things, uh, some things wrong. Um, so I want to talk about this, what I call the sovereignty free will continuum. So if you think of a continuum, on the one extreme you've got Calvinism, which emphasizes God's sovereignty. On the other extreme you've got Arminianism, which emphasizes man's free will. Our task as believers and students of the scripture is to be biblicists and to not go to one extreme or the other. Because here's what happens. If we shift our focus over here to God's sovereignty so that that's what we're all focused on, then we basically make turn mankind into uh, complete robots who have no ability to do anything. God does it all. God is sovereign. You're either in or you're out. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's, you don't have a choice in the matter. You're either elect or you're not. God does it all. And that's what Calvinism teaches, as I'm going to show you. As we go through each of the five points in their own words, they believe man is utterly, completely, totally, absolutely passive. You do nothing. Your faith is not something that you express to believe the gospel. God does that for you. So you're just walking along one day, you're on the road to hell, and then the next thing you know you get zapped, and now you're going to heaven, and you did nothing. You're either in or you're out. And so... When you, when you overemphasize God's sovereignty, it can lead to some pretty dangerous conclusions. You basically uh, become a fatalist, you know. It's whatever will be, will be. I don't have any choice in the matter, you know. Um, and and it, it, uh, it's out of balance because, as we're going to see in this study, Scripture very much teaches man's free will. So uh, you have to keep it in balance. But if you go to the other extreme over here and focus only on man's free will, then you make God impotent. You make God, uh, you know, just not sovereign and just up there kind of watching. It's like God's looking down to say, boy, I wonder, you know, what's going to happen next, you know. And that's, that's where Arminianism lands is it's totally up to us. We can achieve salvation on our own. We can lose salvation on our own. It's not eternally secure. Uh, God shows us the way. He demonstrated it. Christ's death on the cross is a good example, but it doesn't really accomplish anything or pay the price on our behalf or anything like that. So either extreme is dangerous territory. And uh, when I reject Calvinism, and by the way, as we go through this and I go over 
the five points in their own terms and let them define what they mean by each of these five points of Calvinism, uh, you will hopefully conclude, as I have, that I'm a zero-point Calvinist. I don't agree with any of their points, right? Uh, the way they define them. That does not mean I'm an Arminian, because I don't agree with any of Arminianus's, Jacobus Arminius's points either. <laughs> so I think we just have to look at Scripture and say, you know, what does the Bible say? And by the way, I don't mean by this diagram to imply that Calvinists and Arminians have no regard for the Bible. I mean, again, they value the Bible. They think of it as God's Word, and they, they would never disparage it like a lot of if you know uh, liberal theologies today this isn't a conservative versus liberal issue in the realm of christianity we're all in the same boat of Christ of, of conservatism i'm talking about theologically that just means that you believe the bible is the inerrant infallible word of god it's the only standard for our beliefs attitudes and practices liberal groups within christianity think the Bible has got mistakes, they think all the miracles were false, and, you know, these kinds of things. So, um, you know, we're not talking liberal versus conservative. We're all conservative. We all value the word. It's how you handle it. And they don't handle it correctly. They, they misinterpret God's teaching. And frankly, it's because Calvinism has such, had such a stranglehold for so many years that people don't really even take the time to step back and look at these passages with a blank slate and let the Bible speak for itself. They, they've just embraced the whole system and, and, and you, you, don't, you know, don't tell me otherwise is kind of their approach. Um, so, you know, Calvinism overemphasizes God's sovereignty. Uh, Arminianism overemphasizes man's free will. I think a balanced approach... Uh, emphasizes the plain teaching of the Word of God. I think that's what we want to strive to do. So if the Bible teaches that whosoever will may come, if the Bible teaches that God so loved the whole world, if the Bible teaches that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, for the sins of the whole world, so be it. Let the Bible speak. But if the Bible also teaches, as it does in passages like Ephesians 1, that God has elect, that those God has chosen in eternity past those who will be saved. Let it teach that. I don't. It's not my job to reconcile those things, right? And see, some dispensationalists, I think, make a mistake in, in you know again reacting to Calvinist teaching, and they try to redefine the plain teaching of God's word about election. And I run into this a lot because. People are shocked that I'm such an outspoken critic of Calvinism. I've written on it extensively and talked about it all over the place. And then they find out I believe in election and they go, what? Because they assume if you reject Calvinism, you reject election. I don't reject election at all because the Bible teaches it. I just don't emphasize one or the other. I, I, you know, it's, God's the one that has to figure it out. In fact, if you, if you look over at Romans chapter 11... Paul, in this great section where he's describing national election for Israel, Romans 9, by the way, has nothing to do with individual election. Calvinists think it does. It doesn't. Contextually, it's only about Israel, chapters 9 through 11. He's asking the question, what about Israel? Has God forsaken them forever? And he's describing how God chose, you know, Jacob, but Esau he has hated. 
uh, which is a figure of speech, which we just studied in our series, uh, called uh, hyperbole. Uh, same way Jesus said, you know, you have to hate your father and mother and love me. It's just hyperbole. He's basically saying God chose Jacob. He rejected Esau. And people are like, whoa, that doesn't seem fair. And God says, hey, I'm the potter. You're the clay. Sit down and shut up. That's basically what God said. That's not the very reverent way to say what Romans 9 says, but that's essentially what he says. And so at the end of all this section, Paul writes at the end of chapter 11, Oh, in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, I don't understand how God can elect and yet give us complete free will to either believe or reject the gospel. I don't understand it. But the Bible teaches it. The Bible also teaches the virgin birth. I don't know how a virgin can have a baby. The Bible teaches the hypostatic union. I don't know how Christ can be fully God and fully man. The Bible teaches the Trinity. I don't know how God can be three but one at the same time. What, what is that? We, we believe it because the Bible says it, not because it all is able to add up in our fail, uh, frail human logic. And that's what Paul is saying there in Romans 11, the depth and the riches of, uh, of, of God. So, you know, Calvinism overemphasizes God's sovereignty so that man becomes impotent and passive in everything. And, you know, Arminianism overemphasizes man's free will so that God becomes impotent. And we want to have a healthy balance based on uh, what the Word of God says. Does that make sense? So, sovereignty, which we'll talk about as we go through this, is actually a foundational principle of God's Word. It's one of the attributes of God. To reject sovereignty is, is really to be unorthodox in your theology. We believe God's sovereign. And we may not always understand it. Like, how many of you believe God was sovereign with the Uvalde shooting? Absolutely. I mean, there's no other answer to that question than yes. God is sovereign. Nothing ever catches God off guard or contravenes his sovereignty or makes God say, wow, I wish that hadn't happened. God is God. The Bible says God, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, right? And I think that's Psalm 100. 15 I think um, so you know we, we when we get to heaven we can sit down and have discussions with God for all of eternity about the wise but God exists outside of time space and matter in, in a realm that we can't even comprehend we cannot comprehend eternality because we live in time space and matter and we think linearly right but God exists in the eternal now. And so what he's revealing to us in his word is that, yes, I am God. There is no other. I choose. Uh, and by the way, we'll talk about this too in more detail. God's sovereignty in, in election is not based on foreknowledge. That's just another failed attempt of man to try to make it so that we understand it. So people will say, well, God looked ahead, saw that you know, J.B. was going to believe the gospel. Then he came back and chose him. No. The major flaw with that thinking. There has to be, if God's going to read ahead in the book, somebody had to write the book. And there is no body besides God. So it's not like God is sitting in eternity and somebody hands him a book of all of history 
And he said, I'm going to flip ahead a few chapters and see what happens in the year 20, you know, 1974 when I got saved. And then, oh, he's going to believe the gospel. Okay, I'm going to choose him. Where'd the book come from? God is e the only eternal being. So he didn't just read ahead in the book. He wrote the book. That's the bottom line. So uh, God is sovereign, and we trust in him. We trust in all that he's uh, doing. And uh, yet man still has a choice to make, uh, just as Adam and Eve did, by the way, in the garden. God didn't force Adam and Eve to eat the apple, did he? And he doesn't force sinners now, after the fall, to believe the gospel. Right? But again, we'll make, we'll make this a case. So, by the way, what, uh, where do uh, Calvinists buy their groceries? At the local pick and save. So, <laughs> all right. So, what is Calvinism, and is it? <laughs> you just now getting it? Um, what is Calvinism, and is it biblical? So, I want to mention this next thing, and I hope you'll understand my heart about what I'm about to uh, to say. My first ever book many years ago, was Getting the Gospel Wrong. It's now in its second edition. And this book came directly from my Ph.D. dissertation. Now, why do I say that? Because I spent seven years studying Calvinism and you know, Lordship Salvation and the very essence of the gospel and produced in theory. I mean, if you earn a PhD in theory, you have a terminal degree and your, your dissertation has to be so narrow a topic that in theory anyway, nobody knows more about this topic than, than you. Now, in, in practice, that's certainly not the case. I've grown in my knowledge of, of soteriology greatly in the you know, 15, 20 years since I graduated. Uh, and there are no doubt many people out there that have more knowledge about it than me. But when you choose and get your approval for a dissertation topic, it's got to be so narrowly defined that really you're contributing a piece of literature to the corpus of all writings that no one else has really come at it from that angle. And my premise for this uh, dissertation that became the book was, what precisely does someone have to do to be saved? And what, exactly when, does it, they, when do they pass from death to life? What is it, from the human perspective, they have to do to be saved? And it turned into a very you know, lengthy, highly uh, uh, footnoted uh, book on that subject. And so the reason I say that is that this is something that you know, has been a passion of mine, again, since the year uh, 1990, when I first started seminary and was introduced to it. I, like most Christians, grew up thinking... You know, yeah, of course I know the gospel. You know, you got to repent of your sins and turn your life over to Jesus and invite him into your heart. <laughs> That's how everybody gets saved, right? And then I discovered, wait a minute, the Bible says nothing about any of those three things. Wow, I think I've missed something along the way. And I, and I really had a desire for precision, for that uh, irreducible minimum of what precisely someone has to believe about Jesus to be saved. I mean, people can believe Jesus exists. That doesn't mean they're going to heaven, <laughs> You believe, can even believe he died and rose again. Doesn't mean they're going to heaven. The gospel has a very quantifiable, precise content. And uh, so as I speak and talk about this topic, it always frustrates me when, you know, 
young people who are, have read a John Piper book and consider themselves experts on Calvinism come up and try to, uh, you know, correct me. I may not be right about everything, but at least recognize that this is something I've thought a lot about for many, many years. Again, doesn't make me right, and I, as always, challenge everybody. In, in one of the emails I responded to today, I said, study this for yourself. This is just my studied opinion. I could be wrong. Study it for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. But you asked and I answered. So I hope you'll understand that I'm not just winging it here. Of any topic I've ever spoken on, this is something that is really the most meaningful to me. In fact, ever since the book, the first edition of the book came out, whenever someone asked me to sign it, I always sign my name and I put 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21 as the inscription verse under my signature. Where Paul in his uh, letter to Timothy says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, because by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And then I love the way Paul ends this, like he does many of his letters, grace be with you. And I just fell in love with grace uh, and I'm 32 years ago, and I'm starting to, and I'm continuing to understand it and, and appreciate it and know it. And... Uh, I feel like God has challenged me, as he has really all of us, to guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. It's not something that can you can just kind of flippantly um, agree to disagree on. The gospel is a matter of life or death. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is uh, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. So if the gospel is wrong... People might believe it, but that's not going to get them to heaven. You've got to believe the right gospel to get to heaven. So uh, some caveats and disclaimers uh, before we dive in to the history of where it all began. Uh, first of all, I'm going to let those who hold the Calvinist perspective speak for themselves. I'm going to provide a critique, not of what I think Calvinism is, but what they actually define Calvinism as in their own words. So we'll each on each of the five points, I'm going to have slide after slide of leading Calvinists. Some of them uh, passed away, some of them still living. Uh, and then I'm going to say, here's what they say. So this isn't me putting words in their mouth. This is me uh, helping, uh, you know, critiquing in an honest way through Scripture why I believe they're not accurate. Um, as I examine these five points of Calvinism, I'm going to run each of them through the grid of Scripture, and we're going to say, what does the Bible say? So we'll go through, here's what Calvinism teaches. Now let's take a look at what the Bible says. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to be gracious and constructive. Um, you know, I, I definitely believe, especially a lot of the leading theolo theologians that are Calvinists today are wrong. Um, but I'm not personally attacking them. I'm not, you know, this isn't pejorative information. I have dear friends that are very passionate in their Calvinist views. In fact, last, uh, I don't remember when it was, but when we were in Houston most recently on a speaking game, and I spoke at a, one of those churches. <laughs> and uh, he was a former student of mine, and um, he kind of got into that and, and has been passionate about it his whole life, and we have good-natured discussions about it when we connect. And I don't mind preaching there and he doesn't mind having me preach there because he knows I'm going to preach you know the word of God uh, now obviously in that context I wouldn't get up and say you know anybody who's a Calvinist is stupid you know because he's teaching his church Calvinist theology 
But at the same time, I'm challenging them to get into the Word of God, and hopefully uh, as the Spirit of God works on them, they'll come to recognize maybe that not everything they have thought they understood was accurate. Um, so these issues are not minor uh, or insignificant. They're fundamental and important. And we have an honest disagreement about something very important. And I think it's a crucial issue. And that's why I want to take the time to you know, uh, teach, uh, teach uh, through this uh, information. So where did it all begin? <clears throat> well, John Calvin, of course, 16th century, great Reformation leader. Most of us know at least that much. Uh, his Institutes of Christian Religion, which he published in 1536, as well as his commentaries and other writings, basically serve as the foundation for Calvinist theology, or at least that's what modern Calvinists today say. In the theological academic realm, a lot of uh, scholars have taken to calling modern-day Calvinism neo-Calvinism, neo meaning new, because, in fact, uh, the Calvinist scheme really didn't even come about until 50 years after Calvin's death. And frankly, if you take the time to read through some of Calvin's writings, like his Institutes, you'll find a lot in there. And I'm going to give you some of these quotes as we go through this, because um, I like reminding Calvinists of this. Um, he doesn't even agree with a lot of their tenets today. But certainly he's the namesake uh, and Calvinism as a theological system has really continued to evolve ever since it was, you know, sort of crystallized by Theodore Beza. Now, Theodore Beza, after Calvin's death, he's a, a French Protestant Reformed theologian. Everybody knows what we mean by Reformed, right? So the Reformation, what, 1517, I think? Anyway, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, basically disavowing Roman Catholicism's teaching, that launched what we call the Reformation and has given us the Protestant world, right? Protest, they protested Calvinism. And, of course, over the last 500, I mean, protested, excuse me, uh, Catholicism. And over the last 500 years, you know, that has led to all kinds of schisms and schisms and denominations and split-offs and whatever. But... Uh, you know, while we are grateful for the hand of God in the Reformation, even the early Reformers couldn't really break away entirely from Rome's teaching about salvation, and they carried a lot of baggage with them. So in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I make the point that both Calvinism and Catholicism paved the road back to Rome, really. Uh, which is a works-based salvation. Um, but in any event, Beza is a, was a Reformed theologian, and uh, he wrote a biography of Calvin and basically succeeded him as the head pastor in uh, Geneva. He wrote and taught extensively as a professor of Greek and theology at the Genevan Academy, and he basically was the face or the champion of Calvinistic ideas and really helped develop Calvinism as a theological system. Um, Calvinism was a, as I mentioned earlier, a reaction from its very inception, like most theological uh, movements. Uh, it was a reaction to the teachings of a man named Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch Reformed theologian uh, who emphasized freedom of the will and opposed several of the Calvinistic teachings like 
unconditional election and irresistible grace. Arminius held that freedom of human will is not incompatible with the sovereignty of God, which I would agree with that, and that Jesus Christ died for all, not just the elect. The Arminian position, as it came to be called, was formally set forth in 1610 with what's called the Remonstrance. The Remonstrance was a statement of Arminianism drawn up in 1610 by a close friend of Arminius, and it was signed by 44 Arminian leaders that were called Remonstrants. That's why it's called the Remonstrance. It contained five articles drawn from Arminius's doctrinal writings, summarizing his doctrines, and essentially it repudiated key Calvinist doctrines like double predestination and the, the, the view that Christ died only for the elect and so forth, uh, and that grace was irresistible. You know, Arminians taught that you could reject the gospel. Um, those opposed to the Remonstrance later condemned Arminianism at the Synod of Dort. And this is where we get what we have now as the five points of Calvinism. It comes directly from uh, the Synod of Dort. Some 200 remonstrant ministers were ousted from their pulpits after this synod, and many more were expelled uh, from the Netherlands. So the Synod of Dort, what, what was it? It was an international church assembly called to settle these doctrinal disputes between Calvinism and Arminianism. It was as much a political matter in that day as it was a theological matter. In fact, it was attended by 18 national leaders, 27 foreign delegates, uh, 35 pastors, and five professors. So it was a big deal uh, in its day. Uh, but the lasting effect is that the, re the conclusions from that synod gave us the five points of Calvinism that are still held by Calvinists today and which we are going to critique one after the other in this uh, series. Obviously, today, the conflict between Arminianism and Calvinism is far from settled, but it's helpful to understand that everything happens in a historical context. So if you were in the Netherlands at that time and coming out of the Reformation and people were still trying to find their way, which re reformer are we going to follow? And, you know, they, they basically left, you know, you know, become unshackled from their connection to the state-run Catholic Church that had been around for 1,500 years. But now it's a new day. So, so who do we follow? And so in their little narrow historical context, they all thought there's really only two options, Calvin or Arminius, right? But, of course, God is much bigger than that. And God was doing incredible things all across the globe at that time. And unfortunately, uh, this dichotomy just sort of still has a stranglehold on evangelical theology to this day so that, as I mentioned, People tend to think you either have to be one or the other. Yeah. Since this was around the time of Luther and his ideas, where does he fall, or Luther's fall in continue? So that's my point. Is The question is, where does Luther, a contemporary, uh, fall around this time? Well, this was a little bit after him, and, uh, you know, he, he should, deserves the credit for rejecting uh, particularly the indulgences and some of the other Catholic teachings, but he ended up going a totally different direction, and it's almost as if Calvin and Arminius and their followers just weren't even aware of it or didn't even acknowledge it, right? So Luther, he, you know, Lutherans today, similar to Calvinists today, uh, 
you know, count him, count Luther as their namesake. But if you go back and read some of his stuff, you find out that modern-day Lutheranism has departed quite a bit from him. But, but still, he, as I talk about in my book, he included several elements of works in his new direction theologically. Uh, so basically, the reformers. So, so here's the the, the summary again, uh, um, and the contrast between Catholicism and the reformers, Protestant reformers. Catholicism taught that you've got to do good works to be saved, specifically the seven sacraments. Luther and the reformers, especially as they crystallized their thinking and became what is what we have today, taught that you don't have to do good works to be saved, but if you don't do good works, you're not saved. So either way, good works become the instrumental factor. It's just, you know, works-based teachings put it on the front end. You got to do good works to get into heaven. Calvinism puts it on the back end. You got to do good works, or you really never were saved. So either way, you're not getting to heaven if you're not a good person, right? So Luther, especially Lutherans today, he he had, you know, similar carried over some similar baggage with uh, the communion services and. Uh, child, uh, child uh, baptism, infant baptism, I should say, infant baptism, uh, and some of those things. Um, but again, they, you know, who's to say what we would have done if we'd have been in the same situation? It's very hard to let go of baggage. You know, the quote that I give all the time from Martin Luther, it's harder to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. And so, you know, I, we, we cheer them, we applaud them. I think, praise God, that he used a lot of the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others. But uh, they weren't perfect. And that's why, again, we always have to run things through the Scripture. Yeah. What was Calvin's connection to Luther? Was he one of his students? I thought I read that somewhere, but I don't remember where. I don't, re- I don't have my notes in front of me on that. It's been so long since I've taught church history. Um, so I really can't can't tell you the direct connection between the two. I probably should know that, just but it's just been a long time. I haven't tucked it away in an accessible file. So. And I do remember reading that Jacobus Arminius was one of Calvin's students. Yeah, he split off from Calvin, and that was part of the problem. I'll try to do some research and and, and look that up, you know, for next time. So I know we're out of time, but I've got one more introductory thing that I want to do before we start with the five points, and that is I just want to put some names on the screen so that you kind of identify at least some modern Calvinists and Calvinist movements and organizations. Uh, So obviously John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, Tim Keller, Wayne Grudem, Mark Dever, Al Mohler, Vody Bauckham, by the way, I knew Vody, no, no Vody, worked with him. Uh, I was the dean of faculty and back, director of baccalaureate programs when I was in academics for six years, and he was one of my adjuncts before he kind of went all in with Calvinism and became a leading figure today. So I still have conversations with some of his staff and stuff from this day, but big-time Calvinist. Uh, obviously, groups like the Gospel Coalition and T4G. This is just a few leading ones that come to my mind that you might be familiar with. You probably have books on your shelf by some of these guys. And you just need to understand these are, you know, Calvinists. Uh, now, if you're a good student of Scripture and, you're, you know, you understand how to be discerning and spit, eat the meat and spit out the bones, a lot of these guys have great stuff 
you know, about other topics. But I would not recommend them to just any average believer, uh, especially a new believer, because what happens is the person's going to latch onto them, and then they're going to read everything, and the first thing you know, they're going to be wholly embracing a false understanding of uh, the gospel, and that affects your view of sanctification and discipleship and, and all of that. Um, but uh, any other that you guys have come across that you would add to your personal list of Calvinist teachers? All right. So we got through all of the intro. Next week we'll dive into the five points of Calvinism, which everybody I think knows uh, is uh, easily remembered by the acronym TULIP. So we'll talk about total depravity, unconditional election. We'll probably spend more multiple weeks on each of these as we go through it. Depends how many questions you ask. You didn't ask a lot of questions tonight. Makes me nervous because we might be through with this in five weeks if that's the case. But anyway, uh, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. So we'll come next week and we'll talk about what Calvinism teaches about total depravity. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming out. Remember, next week and henceforth, unless something unexpected happens, we'll meet on Wednesday nights as usual, 6 o'clock Mountain Time. And uh, this was just a special uh, schedule change for this week only. So we'll see you Sunday. Uh, and uh, then again next week on Wednesday.